Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. And welcome to GradCast, the official podcast society of graduate students at the University of Western Ontario. I am Tristan Johnson, and I'm here tonight with my wonderful darling co-host with the husky eyes, Alex Mazinski, with a Z. Hi, everyone. There's actually two Zs. <laughs> How are you today? Not bad. I'm not optimistic about what I saw outside, but... Um, it actually stopped snowing. It stopped? Okay, Did good. It really? All right. It's uh, raining now. So we're now at... We're now in March which is the most fun time of year. Uh, we're getting to the end. And so today we are joined by our wonderful guests. Uh, I think one of our first guests actually from the Department of Geography. I think our first. Yeah, I think I get- so. We, we, well, one of the original hosts of GradCast, James Gocher, was, I think, a geography student. Well, not anymore. All right. So the first, <laughs> the first geography student we've had in a long time, Michael Allen. Welcome. Hi there. Nice to meet you guys. And thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to get to start, you're a first year MSC student. Yep. Yeah. And you're from Michigan. Originally, I'm from Michigan, but I did my undergrad at the University of Portland over in sunny Portland, Oregon. So made a big trip over here on a plane, but I'm loving it so far. I was expecting mm-hmm. more snow, but that's okay. Don't worry. Always next, next year. Next winter, next year. Yeah. you will receive more snow. This was a very, very mild winter. So. Thanks, El Nino. Yeah, and you'll know exactly <laughs> yeah. why. Uh, so you work in the climate lab? I do. Um, so geography is a pretty massive department. Um, we have people kind of studying all over the place. But specifically, I work in the urban climate lab uh, under the advisement of the wonderful Jamie Voot. Um, who's a Dutch man, and we all love him in the Urban Climate Lab. So then uh, I guess I'll get started. Like, what is the interests or what is the approach that people in the Urban Climate Lab try to, like, what kind of, what kind of problems do you try to solve? Um, we try to really quantify um, kind of the granular details on how the urban form in general influences climates, Um, and better ways of measuring urban climates, predicting urban climates, and mitigating some negative aspects of urban climates, including the urban heat island, um, air pollution stagnation in urban areas, and a whole lot of other technical things like that. Hmm. So, this might be too specific a question, but like, why does the urban heat island happen? So that really comes down to a fundamental question of the urban climate. Um, The urban heat island, and it's kind of funny that you bring that up, because we really, we have a good understanding of, or we have very good descriptions of the urban heat island, which for those of you that don't know, the urban heat island is just an urban area's tendency to retain more heat, and that manifests in higher air temperatures, higher surface temperatures, and just generally... Um, a warmer and modified climate. Um, really sticky summers. That Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've probably noticed that if you've been in an urban area that it tends to retain more heat. Um, but the urban heat island um, was really first described a long, long time ago by, uh, it, it's actually kind of an interesting story, by an 1833 uh, manuscript by a man named Luke Howard, which was a 
he was a Royal Academy chemist, um, and he was trying to quantify the climate at large in London, the other London, the bigger London, London, UK. Original London. Yeah. Um, and what he essentially found when he was trying to characterize the climate at large was that he really wasn't able to. Um, he termed um, what was confounding his data, he termed it urban contamination, which led to an artificial warming of the measurements that he was taking. Um, and that's kind of what we term now to be the urban heat island. Um, and that was the first description of really what an urban climate is. It's just a deviation from the normal climate that makes it uh, irregularly warmer. And now that's really interesting because the stuff we make cities out of and the sources of energy that we use are very different from the 1830s to now. So what is there any like theories that span all that time that explain why this happens? So many hot bodies in the cities. Yeah, yeah, and we've definitely gotten much much hotter since then. Um, but there's definitely, since 1833, since the time of Luke Howard, um, although the materials that we make buildings out of have changed somewhat, the effect that those materials have on the climate hasn't changed very much. Um, so in terms of urban spaces modifying the climate, it's really, there's a ton of different reasons why, and it varies very much from urban area to urban area. Um, but it's, it's really more about, um, A, the surface area of an urban area is m much, much larger, right? B, when you're looking at a, at a normal climate, kind of like a, a, if you think of a rural area or an unimproved area, you don't have kind of this 3D structure to it. Um, what a 3D structure in an urban area does is effectively it allows um, vertical features and horizontal features to absorb sunlight. And so overall, a larger, you have a much larger uh, surface area of absorbing features. And a lot of those features don't re-radiate all of their energy. Or if it's re-radiated, uh, it just ends up being absorbed by other vertical and wall features. So that's really interesting because like... As a, as a biologist and specifically as a neuroscientist, I'm thinking of a brain right now, which has all the sulci and gyri, right? So you've got all these folds on the brain to increase mm -hmm. the surface area to allow for more and more neurons. And that, what that does is make the brain take up a, about a third of the energy your body uh, consumes. So that is really kind of close to biology almost. And you even said there's a larger surface area in the city. So I think that's that's amazing. It, it just it makes so much sense to me, the way you're describing it. Mm -hmm. I've also heard about climate change uh, engineering, where they have considered repurposing or re um, reformulating concrete and asphalt to be white instead of black to be more ablative. That that's the right word, right? Yeah, that's the um, yeah. Wouldn't that hurt everybody's eyes so much? It'd be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, in terms of, you know, your ocular region, yeah. but you actually would, you'd be uh, quite a bit cooler. So if you stand, and you can even do this uh, at your apartment or anywhere, if you stand next to a wall on a hot sunny day and that wall is dark or black, you'll physically feel all of that heat radiating off the wall because it's absorbing so much more heat energy and then re-radiating re it. If you do the same thing next to a, a whiteboard or um, the same wall painted a different color or painted a, a brighter color, it'll be significantly cooler and it's just because it's not absorbing as much heat. 
Oh, wow. So let's get into things a little bit here. The focus of your research specifically is urban surface temperature. Right. So what, what does that mean? We're kind of getting into it, I guess, a little bit right now. Sure. But what, what is urban surface temperature? Um, well, surface temperatures are, um, I guess they're, it's, it's slightly obvious what a surface temperature is, but an urban surface temperature isn't quite as obvious. Of course, a surface temperature is just the temperature at which something is radiating. So say, for instance, if you turn on the burner at your house and you have an electric burner, it's radiating heat based on that the temperature of the object itself and the hotter the temperature the more radiation it emits right what makes an urban surface temperature interesting and what makes it difficult and what makes it important really is the fact that an urban surface is we term it convoluted which is kind of what i was getting at earlier where it's it's three-dimensional right if you think about your burner again or if you think about a black wall that you're standing next to that's a single kind of two-dimensional feature, right? When we talk about an, an, an urban area and kind of an urban area at large, so if you're looking at an entire urban area, it's not a two-dimensional feature, right? It has all of these folds, almost like a brain, and all of those folds have different surface temperatures. So if you think about the sun rising during the day or in the morning, once it just comes above the horizon, it's not above the rooftops, right? And it's only heating specific walls, right? So those walls are going to heat up very fast and they're going to heat up much, much faster than, say, the roads or the rooftops or any walls that aren't in the sunlight. And that will change throughout the day and it also changes seasonally. What makes it difficult to kind of quantify urban surface temperatures is the fact that there's so much convolution means that it's tough to get a representative surface temperature, right? So if I'm trying to get the surface temperature of an urban area or an urban canyon is sometimes what we call it. And that's just kind of a theoretical, um, if you think about kind of a, a theoretical street where it's bounded by the street and the walls and the rooftops, if I'm trying to get a surface temperature that's representative of that entire surface area, well, what surfaces do I include? All of those surfaces will have completely different temperatures. And how do I measure something like that? So how do you measure something like that? There are many, many different ways. Um, and all of them have their pros and cons. So one way that's really uh, gotten important since, or really come to prominence in the last maybe 40, 50 years is the satellite method of doing so. And that allows you to get uh, a very large scale estimation of surface temperatures. But of course, if you think about taking a, an aerial photograph, uh, say, Going back to our oven, if you're trying to get the surface temperature of your oven and you have a, a very crappy oven, if you're taking a photo from the top of your oven and the door of your oven isn't properly insulated, well, is taking a surface temperature of only the top of your oven really giving you the actual surface temperature of your oven? Because the door of the oven will be very hot. Um, so satellites aren't that good in that respect because they don't accurately represent the urban form. So they represent it on a planar scale and only give us a bird's eye view of rooftops and roads. Which are, are not necessarily uh, representative of what it's like on the street. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, there are a lot of other ways of doing it as well. Um, they tend to be a little bit more difficult to do. One way of doing it is to use 
um, IRTs or infrared thermometers just pointed at each facet. So facets are just the different surfaces of an urban canyon. So you could have one pointed at a road and then a bunch pointed at walls and then another pointed at roofs. Um, but that tends to be pretty cost, inten uh, yeah, cost intensive. Uh, however, that does give you a good temporal resolution because you can see how surface temperatures change throughout the day in contrast to a satellite, which gives you one photo maybe maybe once per day. So then uh, why would a, a city want to invest in something like that? Um, well, you can ask Toronto. So Toronto, I just did a big campaign in Toronto um, for the Pan Am Games, uh, taking surface temperature measurements uh, and taking... Um, one of the other people in my lab does a lot with human thermal comfort. Um, and what we really find uh, when we quantify urban climates in general is that mitigation strategies against things like the urban heat island um, and against other kind of negative urban climactic issues are very effective. And not only do these issues really affect people's lives in that uh, heat-related deaths within cities are much higher uh, and chronically underreported. Um, but mitigation strategies, like I said, are much are are fairly effective, and those would be things like green roofs, um, like white roofs, or using uh, whiter pavements, like you were talking about a little bit earlier, um, and also just being cognizant of how you construct urban canyons and how far apart you put buildings, what the height to uh, width ratio of your streets are all of those have a massive impact on climate on kind of the urban climatology at large um, mm -hmm. yeah all right so what specifically is your research doing then so you're, you're comparing i guess different methods of analyzing sure. uh, urban surface temperature so what what methods are you comparing and what are you looking at exactly so specifically within urban surface temperatures, my advisor and I are kind of um, putting our heads together. Well, his head is much larger than mine in terms of urban climate, but we're trying to effectively develop a new method that accurately represents surface temperatures of all facets using a single instrument. Um, so instead of using a bunch of thermometers or infrared measurements um, from a bunch of thermometers or a satellite, we're using um, basically a very specific type of radiation instrument to then derive surface temperatures. Um, what's kind of unique about the instrument itself is that it's hemispherical, um, meaning so if you um, cut off half of a tennis ball and you put it at the top of an urban canyon, looking down into an urban canyon, it's taking radiation measurements from all of that surface area and trying to accurately represent, well, what's the temperature for that all of those facets weighted for um, their surface area, basically. What's this instrument called? It's called a pergeometer. A pergeometer, yep. okay. Which is, is a bunch of Greek prefixes, but I can't remember what all of them means. Actually, no, it's fire earth eometer. That's it, yeah. Hmm. A fire earth measurer. Yeah, cool. Yeah. That's actually really cool. Yeah. And what do these things look like? Uh, it actually, it looks a little bit, it's kind of funny that you asked that. It, it, it looks a little bit like a, an alien spaceship, like a <laughs> flying saucer, um, because it's got this dome on the top that's clear. And then, so it looks really goofy when we 
uh, in Toronto when I was doing a bit of a campaign, we had a bunch of them mounted on. We were the Google car, which <laughs> they don't be waving. Yeah, it, it was it was pretty funny. We let, most of the time we just let people wave at our car and look really dumb. But, Did um, anybody flash you? Uh, but you know. <laughs> it would have been goofy because we did have a camera as well and that would have been a bit of an issue but, yeah. <laughs> so how much how much do these things cost um, um and they're fairly fragile as well so just because um the instrument effectively has to be transparent through a very specific we call it a wave band um which is just the the band of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum that we're trying to get measurements in because it has to be transparent through that it, the entire thing effectively has to be glass so it's it's incredibly precise both in terms of its construction um, and in terms of the measurements that it makes and so if you break it uh, you buy it and it, yeah. will, it will hurt it will hurt big time oh my so were you driving the car, I guess? I summer? did. Yeah, oh, very boy. slowly, following all of the speed limit. <laughs> very slowly at first, but Toronto traffic, uh, I'm sure you're aware. So as I understand it from some of the information you sent us earlier, you're analyzing a number of data sets from sure. different cities that they've used these pergeometers mm -hmm. to... Sorry, the name pergeometer just <laughs> so cool. Um, I can't help but smile. It's almost as fun as when we were uh, the episode with... Um, oh gosh, I can't remember her name anymore. Melanie something. And uh, we had uh, a thing called a synchrotron a <laughs> with synchrotron radiation and stuff like that. I was like... <laughs> anyway, um, so somebody at some point has, has driven around or set up a bunch of these mm -hmm. and measured, um, measured surface temperatures in a number of, of large urban centers. So I guess, could you tell us a little bit about that and how you're analyzing this data? Sure. So... Most of the data sets that I'm pulling from are from the bubble campaign and the epic campaign. As climatologists, we like to have... Epic uh, bubble names. Yeah, we like <laughs> to have wonderful acronyms. Um, the bubble data set was taken in Basel, Switzerland, um, and it was kind of a conglomerate of a bunch of people that came together um, Similar to the campaign that I did in Toronto, most of these kind of urban climatic campaigns, uh, there's a lot of synergy with the data. So if you're taking data, on, say, with a pergeometer, you'd absolutely want to have data on, say, for instance, air temperatures and humidities and wind directions and wind speeds. You'd probably want to have a LIDAR instrument as well, and you might as well just get a whole ensemble of everything you can find. So most of these data sets... Um, will be huge conglomerates of people coming together and kind of pooling all of their instrumentation, making up a cool acronym, and getting a tower to put everything on. This must be like an, uh, an immense amount of data. Like, do you need like supercomputers to, to tabulate it all or anything like that? Well, I don't think my laptop's quite a supercomputer, but okay. it takes me a while sometimes to open my Excel documents. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, I guess the, the nice thing about them is because these big conglomerates of people come together and, and make these data sets, most of them will be completely open source. So when you make a data order, for instance, you're not like, oh, I need to get everything because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it later. You can usually end up querying everything in the data databases that are stored online, um, which is a major thing. Uh, the EPIC campaigns, which I think a few of which are still ongoing, uh, those were actually done in Canada. And I forget what the acronym called. It's something Canadian Cities. But it, Canada 
kind of interestingly is big into urban climatology. Surprise, surprise, that's why I came into Canada. Um, and, and those data sets are coming from uh, Montreal, uh, Vancouver, and then there, I think, Halifax as well. And those were set up both by my advisor, Jamie Voot, and I think the Vancouver one is chaired by Timothy Oak, who's kind of the godfather of urban climate. So my advisor did his PhD with, with Tim Oak. So we got, always got to put it up for him. Nice. It's really cool that there's a guy who studies the climate and his name is Oak. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's Professor also really Oak. Cool that his name yeah. Professor Oak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so which one did you pick? Uh, which which data? Oh. Which Pokemon did you pick now? Well, I'm a squirrel guy personally. Oh, okay. Uh, so we have time probably for one more question. No, we got lots more time. <laughs> but okay, so you're analyzing these data sets. Um, what have you found so far? Well, um, quite a bit, actually. I've found most of my preliminary findings were basically just seeing how this instrumentation differs from satellite measurements. So our satellite measurements, with the fact that they don't accurately describe an urban area, are they still valid assessments of surface temperature, right? So what I have basically found using uh, the methodology that we're kind of trying to pioneer now is that satellite measurements, um, and this is the technical term, I think, satellite measurements suck, kind of in general, for accurately representing urban surface temperatures over a long kind of climate, climatological time period. Because there's so much surface area that they simply just cannot sample, they aren't accurately representing surface temperatures. Um, of course, that's just my preliminary findings, and it's fairly exciting for me. But we're seeing, at least um, on a few of the days that I've analyzed over kind of normal representative summertime conditions, we're seeing differences of up to 5 to 7 degrees Celsius between satellite measurements um, and per geometer measurements of temperature, um, which is very significant when you're quantifying urban heat islands because the urban heat island... Uh, at least the surface temperature over in Heen Island uh, in a lot of these cities generally ranges between 10 to 7 degrees Celsius. Um, so if you have an error of 5 degrees, that's fairly significant, and that's really going to confound any results that you could potentially glean from it. So That, I would assume, can also have potential implications on people's health with things like, like heat warnings and things. Uh, Certainly, yeah. So most of our heat warnings and most of our our kind of urban modeling will be based off of satellite measurements of surface temperatures because surface temperatures in general regulate air temperatures. And of course, we don't physically feel surface temperatures unless we're pressed up against a wall. Um, we feel the air temperatures. But if you're inaccurately representing and inaccurately measuring the driver of air temperatures, which is surface temperatures, then you're not getting a, a good picture of how to actually model and, and say anything of, of real value f to people f in terms of their thermal comfort in terms of heat warnings. All right. So I guess my last question, which we were kind of talking about at the beginning, um, is if, if there is this disparity between our traditional satellite measurements of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of urban, uh, urban heat surface temperature, urban surface temperature, there sure. we go, um, and, and you're finding a disparity between that and what a much more uh, 
much more sensitive instrument or battery of instruments can accomplish. If we are to go around and make these measurements, um, analyze the data sets, is, do you think it's in the future that we will be able to uh, create computer algorithms that, you know, based on, on everything else, when it's said and done, uh, be able to predict what the surface temperature is based on the satellite readings and account for different weather trends and, I guess, the urban element as well based on different algorithms that we can come up with to modify it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that's the major goal with a lot of these is to be able to accurately predict surface temperatures using other variables. Because surface temperature is, is like I've been talking about for the past, you know, 30 minutes, surface temperature is, is incredibly hard to accurately measure. And you're not going to be able to accurately measure it for an entire city. So kind of the goal of a lot of these studies is to, okay, it's fairly easy to measure, say, air temperature and humidity. It's fairly easy to take a satellite photo of surface temperatures. Using all of those variables, it's fairly easy to come to a better understanding of what the surface temperature is for a complete urban area. Absolutely. All right. Well, anyone who's listening, if you are interested in hearing more, check out Michael's website. That's allenclimatelab.org A-L-L-E-N climatelab.org Yep. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a really great fun. time. And of course, check out the show. There's going to be a whole thing. Music playing right now. Bye. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.